couple of months ago when the elders sat down to discuss this sermon series that we're calling Revive Us, our desire was for us to humble ourselves before God and have our hearts filled with the Spirit of Christ. We want God to refresh our devotion to him and energize our service to Christ so that this church, our church, would bear good fruit, the fruit of love and gospel witness. When we think of the word revival, we often think of the great spiritual awakenings here in New England in our church, church history, but those spiritual awakenings, those greater awakenings began with spiritual revival in particular churches. And revival in the church always begins, always begins with prayer. Pastor Jonathan Edwards was at the center of the start of the first great awakening, and he made a study of it in many ways. As he observed the events of the awakening, he saw how important it was that prayer was the start of it, and that prayer was necessary for its continuing effects. Seeking to unite Christians to pray for revival in the church awakening all around, in 1746, Edwards wrote a book entitled, An Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of the Church and the Advancement of the Christ's Kingdom on Earth. That was the title. It's as long as the book, I think. It's not a very big book. Uh, but this was, this was provided to churches in England or, and New England. So the idea was people on both coasts praying for God to move in this reviving way among his churches. And in it, he based uh, on his first-hand study of the First Great Awakening, he suggested five stages that comprise, or that comprise a revival. He called them intercession, revelation, consecration, revitalization, and expansion. So intercession, that's prayer. We would, we would take that in our terms as prayer, that people begin praying to be revived, that the Spirit of God would move among the people of God. His second term, revelation, is that when we pray, God answers prayer. So God would reveal answers to our prayers. God answers our prayers by, by his word. And so as we, even last week, we, we started to ask to be revived in holiness, we found reasons to pursue holiness in God's word. And so God reveals those things to us. And his third stage, consecration, is what we might call obedience. Do it. Uh, as a result of asking God to do something to revive his church, God provides the food and energy and power that revives us, and then we commit to do what he's called us to do, the, the, the consecration. And those things lead to his fourth stage, revitalization, or what we would call the revival part. The reviving actually takes place when we, when we ask and God gives and we do as he would have us to do, we become revived people. The church becomes more fruitful and obedient. And then out of the obedience of the church, out of that revival that takes place among God's people, there's further gospel advance. The church makes greater impact in the community that it's in. So, praying, receiving, being enlightened, committing in obedience to God's words leads to revival in the church. And then a revived church knows Christ and makes Christ known. That's kind of what we're going for. That's what we're doing in this Revive Us series. And we want to talk about prayer this morning, so I'm just going to ask you straight up the question, do your prayers need reviving? Do your prayers need reviving? 
Different question, do you need to be reviving, be revived as a praying person? Could you use some reviving? Quickly, you may need to be revived in your prayers if you doze off in the middle of your prayers. I'm sure that never happens to you. You may be in need of reviving your prayers if you start talking to God and then suddenly realize you're just talking to yourself. Your prayers may need reviving if your prayers look more like a shopping list than they do a psalm. And if the majority of your praying takes place in the car or in the bathroom, your prayers need reviving. It's not that we don't pray. We pray. It's that you and your prayers need to be sometimes reoriented, recalibrated, refreshed, and revived. This is what Jesus offers us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses people's common religious practices. The Jews had three common religious practices. The giving of alms to be taken up for the care of the poor, praying, and fasting. And we're going to focus on his instructions about prayer, but he begins this section in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, with an umbrella statement that coats the whole, the whole thing. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware. This is a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Are Christians to be righteous in Christ and to practice righteousness towards others? Yes. But here's the issue, and we know it too well. If we say and do righteous things, as we should, to please men, then our reward is the praise of those men. If we say and do righteous things, as we should, to please God, then our reward will be from God, who is our Father in heaven. So you do the cost-benefit analysis. The praise of men is short-lived, and it's of limited value, while the reward of God is of inestimable value and eternal and yet, we are so desirous of the praise of men. Even in our religious practices in the church of giving alms to the poor and of praying to God. And so Jesus draws a picture of what it looks like when people give alms to the poor in verses 2 to 4. Just, just priming his idea here. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. For the Jews that Jesus is talking to, giving alms to the poor is a duty. Just as giving to the church is a duty for us today. It's a religious duty, which means it's, it's directed towards God. So it's not that you're Giving to the church is to be so secretive that no one sees you put a giving envelope in the giving box before or after the service this morning. It's not that. It's when you yell out loud, hey, everybody, there it is, the giving box. 
and I'm heading that way. Look at me. Putting my check in the box. Putting my, oh, wait. You want to see it? You want to take a look at it? Oh, wow. Scott, you're so generous. That's such a big check. Oh, what a, that's a whopping check. I could never give that much. Scott, you're so generous. You're so spiritual. You must love the Lord so much. You see, that's the problem. When you use your religious practices to gain spiritual recognition from men. To pad your spiritual reputation in the church. To make yourself appear to love God more than you actually do. That's why Jesus uses the word hypocrite. That's why that word's there. And that's how, by the inner motives of your heart, you can turn a righteous act into an unrighteous act. So Jesus is really seeking to revive the righteousness in our hearts so that we would then practice righteousness from our hearts. Then God, who can see in the secret place in our hearts, will reward his children who please him. That's the setup. That's the setup for Jesus' teaching on prayer. His teaching intended to revive our hearts in prayer which involves both diagnosis, what's wrong, and then a prescription. Jesus tells us two ways not to pray, and then he gives us one way to pray. So let's pick up in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read through verse 15. This is the word of God. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When we start reading this passage about the hypocrite, it seems almost comical, if not criminal, to us. I mean, surely none of us pray like this hypocrite. Because Jesus labels him a hypocrite, we know he's claiming to love and follow God, but he's not living or praying accordingly. That's the hypocrisy. And he lacks more than just humility, although he certainly lacks that. He needs his heart to be completely reoriented towards God. Let's think of this in terms of hypocrisy in our own prayers. When you pray to God, who is the important one in your prayers? Is it you or is it God? Who is the king 
And who is the servant is another way to ask. Think for just a moment and remember, what is your prayer, what is your relationship based on in the first place when you come to God in prayer? Isn't it that he's the king and you're the servant? See, there is a sense in which we all behave hypocritically because we're not perfect yet. We're still being sanctified. We're still being sanctified. But we don't want to be willing hypocrites, purposeful hypocrites. Let's live and pray according to the truth of our relationship with God. He's the important one in the conversation. And if you pray only when and where it's convenient, you need to be reoriented. Think about that. I think... If you think more about how people around you hear your prayer than you do what God sees in the secret place of your heart when you're praying, you need to recalibrate your prayers. This is the diagnosis that Jesus gives to us. I mean, look at this picture just for a minute. Can you imagine someone treating God this way? Do you realize how egregious this is? You're supposed to be talking to God but you're actually using your conversation with God to talk to someone else. You're using the important one to talk to someone who's less important. Where does that rate you in order of importance? How do you like it when people do that to you? Are you a little bit offended by that? Do you think God hasn't noticed that you're not talking to him at all? In your prayer? Do you think it's okay to use God in that way? Should he reward that prayer? Should he reward that person? Jesus knows that we are all just a little more hypocritical than we think we are. And he's trying to revive us. To pray in secret is to pray from the secret place of your heart to God who is spirit. Jesus is not discounting public prayer or gathered prayer, but he is literally encouraging private prayer, personal prayer. But Jesus' point is to revive our prayers to be to God, our Father, and from us, his children. A right orientation. To reorient our prideful praying to be humble praying to recalibrate any praying that we do to enhance our reputation among men, to become honest submission, humble submission, to move closer to the Father in a relationship. Purpose of prayer. We're talking to God our Father. There's a relationship here based on who He is and what He's done. It's helpful. It's reviving of our attitude in prayer to know that. The next picture, beginning in verse 7, is kind of interesting. We often want to take the, uh, and use this talk for the form of our prayers, keep them short, keep them to the point, or at least try to stay on point, and don't ramble aimlessly. And, and I think those are good aims, as long as we don't become unhelpful prayer critics. Jesus labels this man a Gentile, which means he's an unbeliever. He's one of the Gentiles that's wandered into the city. He's not one of the Jews. It doesn't mean, though, that he doesn't have a spiritual life. If you asked him, he would say, oh, no, I'm a very spiritual person. 
I pray a lot. The Gentiles would pray a list of the names of their pagan gods because they weren't always sure which god's jurisdiction their prayer request fell under. So they just wanted to name them all. Make sure they got covered some way, hoping that a shotgun blast of addresses for this prayer might hit the target. At least one of them might hit. And they would, they would pray many, many words. Why? To try to convince their gods to not harm them, but to help them. Trying to convince and coerce their false gods into doing what they want them to do. Laboring in vociferous verbosity to wear them down. To cause them to give up and give in out of sheer exhaustion from listening to their many worded prayers. That's how the Gentiles prayed. In contrast to that, I was listening to a pastor who was praying for a man in his congregation who wanted to better love his wife. And after listening, the pastor prayed for the man. This was his prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help him to live with his wife in an understanding way. Amen. That was it. Frankly, people who heard about that story thought he should have prayed more words. I mean, come on. Surely you've read more books on marriage. Surely you've you could pray a lot more things. But that was the appropriated, targeted request based on a verse in 1 Peter. It wasn't short to be short. It was short because it was heartfelt and it was complete. Honestly. If you haven't noticed, we tend to fall into preaching and teaching and instructing as part of our praying. Have you ever evaluated how much of your prayer is actually prayer? In that way, our many words, they wander off course towards others that are listening. In a different way than the prideful hypocrite. Well, perhaps anyway. Sometimes someone may pray many words because they, they think that that's the best way to, to pray and be impressive. To cover every single possible circumstance and every single contingency for every possible circumstance, what they end up doing is presuming upon God and instructing him. I've asked God for this and now I'm going to spend 15 minutes telling him how he should do it. Let me help you out here. Give you some cliff notes on how this works down here in the real world, Lord. You can bring this about if you would just listen to me. Frankly, Prayer is one of those areas where more is caught than taught, isn't it? The words we use in prayer tend to be things we've heard other people pray. They sounded good to us in certain moments and certain times, whether they're theologically accurate or based or not. Many of the words we pray are not based on scriptural understanding of who God is and what he's doing, what his purposes are. Prayer is just one of those areas where it's easy for us to be lazy in our choice of words and selfish in rushing through our list of entitlements which just gets us into a word jam have you ever been in the middle of prayer and realized that you were in a word jam you got locked up weren't sure where you were didn't know which word to throw in next we need to recalibrate the words of our prayers 
This does not mean that some people don't use more words than others. It means we should think. You're talking to somebody, and it's God. Be thoughtful. Say meaningful things. And say them clearly. Not because God has trouble understanding us if we're not clear. He knows what we need before we ask. But because we should know what we're praying. We should know what we're asking when we go to God. Whether it's a good ask or a missed ask. We should know. Do you believe that God is good Do you believe that God is good and will help you in his way and in his timing? If you do, then pray like it. Ask for your miracle, but with open hands. And release your request to God. Is it or is it not? As God, his prerogative to answer as he chooses. It is. So pray with open hands instead of clenched fists when you pray and receive what the Lord has. Our wordiness can reveal some worldliness. I think when we get a little wordy, we tend to, it's because we've tended to fall into a little worldliness and our hearts need to be reoriented to the heart of the Father. That's what we find, that's what we find in these examples. You know the people who always talk about themselves, always want things for themselves. They can't seem to move their attention from themselves to anyone else unless that someone else is somehow doing things that relate back to them. I mean, is that the kind of child of God you want to be? I mean, it's off-putting to you. Or might you be interested Might you be interested in growing up to be the sons and daughter of God who've who've taken up the family business? Who are interested in the household of God and what God is doing there? Knowing that God has taken care of you in every conceivable way in Christ, would you like to take up the knowledge of your Father's will and purpose and get after that? I think you would. I'd like to. Would you like to mature Would you like to mature and move past childlike fears and worries and insecurities and instead seek first the righteousness of God and let him add all these other things to you? Jesus gives us his prescription after giving us this diagnosis for doing just that. For reviving our hearts and our prayers and we call it the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It begins in verse 9. We've already prayed this prayer today. It's kind of interesting, I think. I remember going to churches where uh, they prayed the Lord's Prayer each Sunday. I remember going to churches where they didn't pray the Lord's Prayer at all. And the reason was, or at least the reason given was, well, if you just say it all the time, it becomes rote and meaningless. The Lord's Prayer? If the, if the Lord's Prayer becomes rote and meaningless, first of all, the problem isn't with the Lord. 
the problem isn't with the prayer. The problem's with you. We pray the Lord's Prayer together once a week when we gather. It's been seven days since we last did it. That's rote. You can't separate those and pray those words meaningfully from your heart. Of course we can. Of course you can. The difficulty with praying the Lord's Prayer is not letting it become rote. Hey, you, these are the Lord's words. This is how he instructed his disciples to pray. If you're going to pick one pray to prayer, prayer to pray on Sunday, pick that one. And so here's Jesus' prayer in verse 9. Pray like this, he tells his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And let us not into temp- lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The idea that God was a father to his people is not new here. We're sometimes told that it is. But it is new in this way. What's new is that in the new covenant, Jesus the Son of God the Father actually comes and tells us that through faith in him, we are now sons and daughters of the living God and that's your basic relationship with him and so speak this way from now on. That is new. Paul tells the Ephesians, in love God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. So Jesus tells us to pray to our very real Father who is in heaven. So when our prayers drift off target, when our conversation with God wanders back somehow to ourselves, revive your prayers by praying to God who's your Father in heaven. Remember who you're talking to. Which means, by the way, since we're praying to God who's in heaven, that our prayers are not directed by our voices, are they? We can't shout loud enough to hit his ears in heaven. Our prayers aren't directed by our voices. Our prayers are directed by our hearts. Which is why Jesus began there in verse 1 of chapter 6. Hearts filled with love for the Father who gave us life. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Hearts devoted to hallowing the name of God our Father. To hallow means to honor. Your prayers will be revived when you realize that everything you say, the words you use, and the things you ask for should show respect and reverence for your Father. That will revive the words of your prayer. There are many reasons why God is due honor. Here's an easy one for you. One that never grows old. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Now you have plenty of fodder with which to honor the Father. Is there any doubt that God deserves our respect and reverence? Any question? 
oh, brothers and sisters, think of that when you pray to God your Father in heaven. Recalibrate your prayers to be God-honoring prayers. Pray with an attitude of revived humility and submit yourself to God your Father in prayer. Here's another way to revive your prayers. Put God's kingdom first. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on your earth as it is in your heaven. We want our Father's plan and purposes to come to pass. We want our Father's purposes to come to pass. Amen? Oh, we we need reviving. And he has told us what his plan and purposes are. According to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight he has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, which is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1, verses 8 to 10. There is a plan beyond you getting a job, keeping a job, and having enough money to retire on. Those are good and important things. But you would be revived to take on God's perspective of life in this world, to pray for God's kingdom purposes at least as much as you pray for your daily bread. What do we know about God's kingdom anyway? Has it already come? Or has it not yet come? Well, it's sort of both. Jesus is the king, and when he came the first time, he inaugurated the kingdom of God here on earth. So in one sense, the kingdom is already. The already kingdom is the church, in which Jesus reigns over his obedient people. In another sense, the kingdom is not yet. The kingdom is not yet fully and finally here, but when Jesus comes the second time, he will consummate his kingdom. He will sit upon his throne and all of his enemies will be his footstool and he shall reign over all and he shall do that forever. See, we live in this time between the already coming of the kingdom and the not yet fulfillment of the kingdom. We live between these two bookends. So the kingdom already has been initiated and the kingdom will one day be completed and right now the kingdom is coming. It is coming. And that's what we're to pray for. Now is the time to pray for God to bring about his great and glorious plan in its current progress. Here, now, when and where we live. Bring your kingdom by your gospel, God. Bring your kingdom through your obedient church, God. Bring your kingdom in answer to the prayers of your revived people, God. Don't you want to pray from the depths of your heart for God to bring his kingdom all to the praise of his glorious grace? Let the plan and the purpose of God and the glory of God in Christ revive your heart. 
And let's pray on earth the way they pray in heaven. I think they're praying all the time for God's kingdom to come in heaven. You know, Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells us that that every time a sinner comes to saving faith, all of heaven breaks out in rejoicing. So how often is that? As people around the world come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the proclamation of his gospel and the world turns, how often is some sinner, some lost sheep being brought home, carried home on the shoulders of Jesus to God the Father? I think there's constant rejoicing in heaven over the salvation that Christ has wrought. Constant, uninterrupted, celebration and rejoicing for those who come to saving faith in Christ and heaven's filled with it. All of those things being true, we are yet free to pray first for God's kingdom without any worries about ourselves. Because our heavenly father is a good father who takes care of his children. Give us this day our daily bread. There it is. Now, ask your father for the things that he'd like to give you. Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you fearful that you won't get your share? Because right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on, but... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So you see, we can pray for God's will to come about first and then for our needs. Second, without worrying that we're somehow going to miss the boat. We're not. Because what's baked into God's will is his care for us. He hasn't forgotten you. In fact, Jesus tells us to pray for these things too. All of the things that we need. Ask, he says, right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened to you. Here's a little comparison contrast. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. You'd never do that. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. We we don't need much pressing to get us to pray to our Father to meet our needs. We're, We're already highly motivated in that area. But your prayers will be revived by the goodness of God. When you see the goodness of God, your prayers will be revived for the things that you need. And you will learn to pray with open hands instead of with clenched fists. And God will revive your heart with something that you sorely want. Contentment. Contentment. Notice what's linked to our daily bread. It's linked with an and. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is reviving to think about. This is reviving to think about. Think for a minute that Jesus, who is the bread of life, as in, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Jesus is the bread of life, as in, Jesus is the manna that came down from heaven, and whoever feeds on him will live forever, John. This Jesus, who is our daily bread, says, ask God to forgive the sin debt that you owe him. Knowing that this forgiveness of our sins can only come about by his sacrificial death on the cross in our place. And then he says, pray for that. Do you see? Do you see where Jesus is here at the Sermon on the Mount? He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He says, pray for the forgiveness of your sins. How's that going to come about, Jesus? When he goes to the cross, Jesus knows his mission, even as he gives you this command to pray. He's not just going to provide our daily bread, he's going to provide for our greatest need. Our greatest need through his sin-atoning sacrifice on the cross and his life-giving resurrection from the grave. And he is convinced of something. He is convinced that those whose sins have been forgiven, forgiven by God through faith in him will then forgive those who sin against them. It's already a lock. If you have saving faith in my sacrifice on the cross that brought about the forgiveness of your sins, you will then forgive those who sin against you. It's a lock. All the way back at the Sermon on the Mount. We're free. We're free to forgive those who sin against us because we have been forgiven by God whom we have sinned against. That's why we can do it. That's why down in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If we do not forgive others, that is the evidence that we have not first been forgiven by God. Understanding this revives our hearts to be forgiving people. This is the anatomy of forgiveness. This is how it works. When someone sins against you, they owe you a debt, right? You get that part. You know that part. All it takes is a, a pickup truck to pull over in front of you in traffic, and you are, you are locked into this. I know what a sin against me is. They owe you a debt, and you have a right to collect on that debt. But instead of exercising your right to collect on that debt, you release your right to collect on that debt to God. And now he has the right to collect on that debt. You've forgiven that person. You are going to make no effort to collect on that sin debt. You are not going to hold that sin debt against them in any way, shape, or form. It's all gone. You've released that to God. Is that okay? Is it okay to do that? 
Why is it okay for you to let a debt of sin go uncollected by you? Well, because you're going to allow it to be collected by God. God will collect the debt. God is the final judge and arbiter. He will not let any sin go unpunished. That's why you're free to release the debt to him. Nobody's getting off scot-free. Every sin will be addressed. That sin, that debt will be either paid by the sinner according to the just judgment of God or it will be paid by Christ through the grace of God on that sinner. Justice is complete and mercy is fulfilled. This is how forgiveness works. And if a brother or sister sins against you, you must forgive. I'll just say that one more time just to be sure. If a brother or sister sins against you, you must forgive. Knowing that Jesus has already paid for that sin. And if God has already forgiven them, who are you to hold that debt against them? You cannot. If an unbeliever sins against you, you must also forgive. I don't know if you were thinking there's going to be a different answer there or not. There's not. You must also forgive. Because God has forgiven you. Thus rendering you a forgiving person who trusts in the justice and the mercy of God. And so you release on sin debts. Doesn't matter who. To God. You forgive. And you trust God's justice and mercy. Your forgiving heart can be revived to pray even for your enemies. Even for those who persecute you. Even for those who revile you. It's been said, I think it's right, we're never so much like Christ as when we forgive. Here's the bread and butter of being a Christian. Here's the bread and butter of following our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who forgave us rendered us people who now forgive others. He goes on, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This final instruction from Jesus, I think, is telling. It's sort of the bottom line, isn't it? It's sort of the bottom line of our prayers. You see, we're not unbelieving Gentiles. And we don't want to be hypocritical believers pretending that we're without sin. We don't want those things. And so we are like David in Psalm 51. Our sin is ever before us. And so we call upon Jesus who was tempted in every way and did not sin. You know, he's very encouraging to us in that way. We call upon him to to help us to not fall into temptation and to deliver us from this present evil. This is a present tense request. This is not a mere acknowledgement of our justification that because Jesus has atoned for our sins, we will ultimately be delivered from evil. Although that's true. This is a present moment, real time request, right now prayer 
to not fall into that real temptation, to not commit that real sin, and to avoid the ripple effects of the evil that my sinning brings about in your life. There are times when we pray that line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, in calm contemplation. And there are times when we cry out that line in real desperation. And Jesus knows that prayer. Jesus prayed desperate prayers. You may remember from our Summer in the Psalms series that my understanding of the Psalms is that it is not just a hymn book, it is a prayer book. And it's not just any prayer book, it's the prayer book of Jesus. He prayed everything that is prayed in the Psalms. He prayed rejoicing, he prayed lament, lament. he prayed for deliverance from his enemies, he prayed even for deliverance from death. Jesus prayed that prayer. We know that prayer, don't we? <clears throat> the prayer he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane while his disciples dozed off. Is there any other way? Let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not my will but yours, Father. I would call that a prayer of desperation. And for deliverance from him being separated from his Father, which would take place on the cross. <clears throat> Listen to the author of Hebrews describe Jesus' prayers. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, now I take that phrase to mean not just a one-time event, but throughout his life. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. I would call those prayers, prayers of desperation. What would Jesus be desperate for in prayer? I mean, he's Jesus. I think we can find a little bit of an answer, a hint to that, in the prayers of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. We turn to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, we learn some things about prayers. We learn that all creation is groaning. Uh, We learn that we are groaning, and I take groaning to be a synonym for praying. And we learn that the Holy Spirit is groaning or praying on our behalf. So what's he praying for? When Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Do you see how sin of the flesh is linked to death? And the Spirit by whom we put to death that sin is the same Spirit who is interceding for us according to the will of God. The Spirit is praying that we'd be rid of sin and its effect of death. I don't think it's much of a reach to say that the Spirit's prayers and Jesus' prayers are both according to the will of God and they're the same. Especially when Jesus tells us to pray the same thing. Let us 
Let us not lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that this should be a prayer of desperation. Can we find another instance of Jesus praying in desperation? Yes, in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Verse 34 says, Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. Jesus wept in such a way that the Jews said, see how he loved them, exclamation point. And then in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. Same event, moments later, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take the stone away. Jesus wept at Lazarus' grave. Jesus was deeply moved at Lazarus' grave. Jesus was going to pray in desperation at Lazarus' grave. Why? Jesus was visibly and deeply moved, and he would pray in a loud voice. And this is exactly how the author of Hebrews described Jesus' prayers in desperation. But why desperation at the tomb of Lazarus? What's going to happen in like two minutes? Jesus, why, why are you acting all desperate when in like two minutes you're going to call him out and he's going to come out and he's going to be fine? Everybody's going to celebrate. Why desperation? It, it seems needless. Jesus' desperation was over our present sins in this life and their evil effect on the people around us even the effect of death. Does that seem theoretical to you rather than practical? Well, there's help for you. Just ask another Christian if there are any sins in your life that they would like you to put to death because it would benefit them. Husbands and wives, Ask your husband or wife if there are any sins in your life that they would like to see you put to death. Oh, you don't have to wait. There'll be an answer. They know your sins and how they burden them. Even you good church-going people. You see, we need to strive. We need to revive our desperation to pray for help to put away our sin. It's deadly. But there are three things holding us back. I think these things are holding us back. One, we just don't think our sin's that bad. Let's, let's be honest. I'll be honest. I just, I just don't think my sin's that bad sometimes. Relatively speaking, right? Play the comparison game. It's a dangerous game to play, the comparison game. It's useless, doesn't help you at all. One of the reasons why we, we think our sin's not that bad is because we think, the, we think the world is actually a pretty good place. You think the world's a pretty good place? You think this fallen, rebellious, evil, dark world in its last days is a good place? We just, we're just going to be misreading the world. 
getting comfortable in worldliness. And, and part of the reason for thinking that this world is, is actually kind of nice is because we don't really understand the glory to come. We miss Paul's perspective entirely, which was, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18. That's the perspective we need. What's coming is glorious. And its light will reveal the darkness of this world. For now, we gain that understanding and perspective from the Scriptures. And if we would hold that perspective, our attitudes will be revived. So let's pray. Asking God to revive our hearts, to revive our prayers to him. Let's receive the reviving that he provides by his word, through his spirit. And let's commit together to obey his word and be transformed by it and and have a church that builds itself up in love in Christ. Because if we would we will find ourselves to be a revived church. Knowing God and making Him known. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank You for Your many blessings to us in Christ. We desire to honor you in all ways and at all times in our lives. And so we ask that you would revive our hearts, that we would desire to be pure, that your spirit would work in our efforts to pursue holiness by making us holy. And Father, that, Lord, that you would use us in the gospel battle We need courage, and we need strength. And we ask, believing that you will give it to us, that we might be your faithful children, children in in whom you're pleased. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.